The Singapore-Indonesia Leaders' Retreat, Malaysian farmers protest the European Union's deforestation law, and toxic smog in Thailand. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is March 23rd, 2023. On today's show... To sort of compensate for some of the impacts of, of COVID, we have tracked an uptick in Southeast Asian countries' diplomatic influence. So Indonesia, uh, in the previous edition of the Power Index, became a top 10 country for the first time and its diplomatic influence has continued to rise quite strongly and that's partly because I think the way that it's handled certain international issues like the G20 for example has been quite well received. That was Susanna Patton on how Southeast Asian countries' scores on the Asia Power Index have changed over time. For more on the index's methodology, interesting findings, and how the U.S. and China stack up against each other, keep listening. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, I am beyond excited to welcome a very special guest to the studio, SD Chen. Esti and I worked the intern trenches together at the height of COVID two years ago, and this is actually our first time being in the building together. Welcome to Southeast Asia Radio. Thanks so much for having me, longtime listener. Really excited to be on. We would have had you on even sooner, but I know you actually just came back from Indonesia. Can you tell us what you were doing there, and do you have a favorite memory or story from your time there? Yeah, so I received the Born Scholarship to learn Bahasa Indonesia intensively. Um, so after I graduated last June, I moved out to Indonesia. Favorite story, probably when I uh, visited Bandung to see the uh, Museum of the Bandung Conference. The Bandung Conference was kind of my my way into being fascinated about Indonesia. And I was probably the nerdiest person in the entire building. I was freaking out. It was so cool to see the original chairs, the columns. Everything was amazing. That's so great to hear that you had a good time and we're happy to welcome you back to D.C. So speaking of Indonesia, it's been a while since we last covered a retreat. On March 16th, Indonesian President Joko Widodo met Singaporean Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong in the Lion City for the Singapore-Indonesia Leaders Retreat. This was Prime Minister Lee's sixth leaders retreat with Jokowi and the first to be hosted in Singapore since the COVID-19 pandemic. Held at Bintan in 2022, the retreat was the latest in an annual series of meetings where leaders and high-level ministers meet to discuss bilateral and regional issues. Esti, why don't you give us an overview of the key deliverables? Absolutely. Six MOUs were signed at the retreat across the fields of energy, sustainability, health, and human capital development. Under a new tech exchange program, tech professionals from both countries under the age of 30 will be allowed to work in each other's industries and, quote, pursue growing opportunities in each other's digital economies, end quote, according to Singapore's Ministry of Trade and Industry. Such an agreement is quite welcoming and highlights both countries' commitment to lead Southeast Asia as the region's tech pioneers and leading unicorn producers. For context, Singapore is home to the most unicorns in the region, with 25 in total, followed closely by Indonesia with 16. Specific details of the initiative have yet to be unveiled, so we'll have to wait and see. That sounds very exciting. On renewable energy, the two sides agreed to facilitate investments in the development of renewable energy manufacturing industries, ranging from battery energy storage systems in Indonesia to cross-border electricity trading projects between the two sides. Steering away from leadership retreats, though, has there been anything new going on in Malaysia? Well, Malaysian palm oil and rubber smallholders 
have filed a petition against the EU to protest its new deforestation law. The EU's deforestation regulation, which passed in December, aims to prevent goods being sold in the bloc from contributing to deforestation and forest degradation. Under the regulation, all companies involved in the trade of palm oil, cattle, soy, coffee, cocoa, timber, rubber, and their byproducts must adhere to strict due diligence requirements when exporting to or selling within the EU. The regulation sparked an outcry from Malaysia and Indonesia, who are two of the world's largest palm oil exporters and account for over 85% of global production. Earlier this month, Malaysia's Minister of Plantation and Commodities asserted that the regulation was biased against small-scale producers in Malaysia and called on the EU to end its discrimination against small farmers seeking access to the European market. He also argued that the move would not only harm rural communities, but also reduce the household incomes of everyday Malaysians. Environmental activists blame the palm oil industry for the rampant clearing of Southeast Asian rainforests, though Indonesia and Malaysia have made sustainability certification standards mandatory for all plantations. Earlier in February, Malaysia had considered a range of trade curbs to strike back. Representatives also said that the country was prepared to stop exporting palm oil to the EU in response. So, how is the regulation expected to impact Malaysia's palm oil industry? In light of tense relations, the EU ambassador to Malaysia stressed that since Malaysia already introduced measures to prevent deforestation and ensure traceability, the rules would not affect exports from Malaysia as long as they came from areas not deforested after December 31, 2020. But even before the new law was agreed to, EU demand for palm oil was already expected to decline significantly over the next 10 years. Due to palm oil's perceived impact on deforestation, the EU in 2018 announced a directive that requires the phasing out of palm-based transportation fuels by 2030. On that note, we know that vehicle emissions contribute to air pollution, which is currently drawing government attention in Thailand as the country battles PM2.5. The term refers to tiny particles with a diameter of less than 2.5 micrometers, one-thirtieth the width of a human hair, that can heighten the risk of developing cardiovascular and respiratory diseases with long-term exposure. Thailand and other Southeast Asian countries typically experience elevated levels of PM2.5 pollution during the dry season between November and March, when forest fires are common and farmers burn crop stubble to clear their land. The pollution has not only led to almost 200,000 hospitalizations in the past week alone, but is negatively affecting the tourism industry. Some reports suggest that concerns about pollution have caused up to 10 to 15 percent of hotel reservation cancellations in the northern province of Chiang Mai. Given the tourism industry's typical contribution of over 10% to Thailand's annual GDP, and that tourism has already been heavily impacted by the pandemic, the Thai government is highly concerned about any additional factors that could turn away visitors. The Chiang Mai government has urged residents to stay home, distributed face masks, and set up roadside emission checkpoints. These levels of pollution, although alarming, unfortunately aren't an anomaly in the region. In the past month, Both Chiang Mai and Bangkok have consistently ranked within the top 20 most polluted cities in the world on the Air Quality Index. The ranking is updated daily, but Chiang Mai is currently ranked as the seventh most polluted city in the world, and Hanoi, Yangon, and Kuala Lumpur come in at 4th, 12th, and 20th respectively. Last year's Air Quality Index annual report seemed to suggest that overall air quality in Southeast Asia has been improving, with seven of nine countries in the region recording a decrease in PM2.5 concentrations. 
As campaign season gets underway in Thailand, multiple parties have also pledged to address the issue. The Democrat Party, for example, has promised to push for the Clean Air Act, which would establish air pollution standards, promote innovation in pollution control technologies, and fine individuals and companies that irresponsibly cause air pollution. Now is probably a good time to mention that the king finally endorsed a decree to dissolve parliament, and elections are now set to take place on May 14th. Current opinion polls show Pothai's Patungtan Shinawat as the preferred PM candidate for 38.2% of respondents, far above current Prime Minister Prayut's 15.7%. 50% of respondents said they would choose candidates from Pothai. So maybe the party's goal of winning by a landslide and claiming at least 310 seats in the House of Representatives is possible. And those are the headlines. Thanks for joining me, Esty. Thanks so much for having me. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Susanna Patton in our second Roadshow episode from Malaysia. Welcome back to Southeast Asia Radio. As always, I am your host, Gregory Pauling, with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I am joined by the eminent Alina Noor of the Carnegie Endowment. Hi, Alina. I don't know about eminent, but hi. <laughs> and this is our second road show here in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, you got the first one, uh, presumably two weeks ago, when we were actually in Kuala Lumpur. This one is being recorded two weeks in advance, and that is because Susanna Patton of the Lowy Institute also happens to be here at the exact same conference as us, and we couldn't pass up the opportunity. Susanna, for those who don't know and should know, runs both the Southeast Asia program at Lowy and the Asia Power Index program, which gets uh, all the press recently. The, how many years have, have you been publishing the Asia Power Index at Lowy? It's been published for five years. Five years. And this is your first at the helm, right? That's right. Okay. Yes. So beef with the previous four can be laid at, at Hervé Lemahieu's feet. This one is all you. Falls <laughs> on your head. So for those who don't know, the Asia Power Index seeks to rank uh, countries big and small across the Indo-Pacific on eight metrics. Is that right? That's right. Economic, diplomatic, military, etc., which Suzanne will get into. Big takeaways from this one. Um, the U.S. remains on top of the index, followed very closely by China, and then a pretty steep what we gap. call the middle powers, uh, Japan, then India, then Russia, then, then Australia. The U.S. leads in six of the eight measures um, this time. And I think regained one of those that it was trailing on, which was the the economic capability measure as a result of China's long lockdowns. But I think the big takeaway is it was kind of a pox on all of your houses, right? I mean, every one of the major and all of the middle power except Australia did not improve this year. So why don't we, why don't we start there? What was the, you know, malaise <laughs> that, that took down countries big and small across the region in the 2023 version of the index? Sure. Well, thanks very much for the chance to discuss the, the power index with you guys. I think in this edition, we saw similar to what we've seen in the last uh, a couple of editions, the impact of the pandemic on countries' power, on their ability to affect the environment around them has been quite strong. And that's partly because just a lot of the things that we measure in the power index that countries tend to do a lot of, like have flights between them, travel between countries, diplomatic interactions, you know, all of these things that have been less of during the pandemic. So that's affected all countries. The other thing that we've seen is declining geoeconomic 
economic resilience in particular. So countries came out of the pandemic more dependent on a primary trade partner with less diversified trade relationships. And that has affected pretty much all countries, although not all countries at the same time. And I guess that's what we really saw in this edition of the Power Index, that because China's border closures were so much more, so much longer and more protracted than the rest of the region, it really suffered a decline in its power and its economic capability. Whereas for the US, the year that it had the biggest impact from the pandemic was 2020. So it's a kind of everyone has suffered at some point, but not, not all to the same extent. And as you say, some smaller countries and Australia have been slight exceptions to that as well. I like how you termed it that countries are suffering from long COVID because I guess that, that was the pox on all our houses, right? COVID. But I thought it was interesting that Southeast Asia as a region, at least in, in findings, came out slightly better. And that's probably because of necessity that they had to be more diplomatic and active in their diplomacy. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I mean, some Southeast Asian countries, I guess, have been acknowledged for their good handling of the pandemic, right? So Singapore is one that everyone still talks about in, in that regard, but there are, there are others as well. So I think it is partly that. And then it's partly that to sort of compensate for some of the impacts of, of COVID, we have trapped an uptick in Southeast Asian countries' diplomatic influence, as you say, Alina. And that is applicable both to the larger Southeast Asian countries, but also the smaller ones. So Indonesia, uh, in the previous edition of the Power Index, became a top 10 country for the first time. And its diplomatic influence has continued to rise quite strongly. And that's partly because I think the way that it's handled certain international issues, like the G20, for example, has been quite well received by the experts who we, who we survey as part of measuring diplomatic influence each year. Another part of it is that for this edition of the Power Index, we actually started measuring for the first time all the interactions between countries at the foreign minister level and above. So it's a huge job to, to track this. We've been doing it on the defence side for a while, but of course the foreign ministry track is a lot more active and so it's a lot more work, but we've managed to do it and, and the findings are very interesting because it really cuts against the idea that you sometimes hear that Southeast Asian countries aren't diplomatically active enough or that they're not, you know, really sort of leading in the region. Because what we actually found was that when it came to hosting meetings at foreign minister level and above, Indonesia was actually the second most active in the region. So it's a very sought-after partner. And then even some of the smaller ASEANs like Cambodia and Brunei were also sort of surprisingly active on that score. Let me quiz you a little bit on the specifics. So Indonesia, as you say, has... I think for many, probably a surprising amount of diplomatic clout. I don't know how much of that was unique to the G20 host year, and then this year is going to be the ASEAN host year, um, or how much of that is just kind of baked into to Indonesia's diplomatic role. But it's still only the second most powerful in the index in the region. First is Singapore. What makes Singapore still, in 2023, so, well, I know the Singaporeans hate this term, but you know, continue to punch so much above its weight? It can be a contentious question, actually, and I, many people find it really surprising that we, that we do rank Singapore higher than Indonesia when it comes to power. I think 
And it's, it's very hard to compare a small, highly networked, outward-looking country like Singapore with a, you know, with a huge, sprawling, populous country like Indonesia. But what, what Singapore does and, and where it succeeds is that it's active and influential across all the, the range of the measures that we look at. So from the fact that it has very active defence networks, partnerships with a huge range of countries, it has these training arrangements where it's actively deploying around the world with such a wide range of partners. It's active and influential in a large range of diplomatic groupings as well. And of course, it's highly integrated into the regional economy. So all of that gives Singapore a lot of clout. Whereas Indonesia, of course, you know, has more weight in terms of its population and its land mass. But like all large developing countries, it also has to devote a certain amount of its focus inwards. We see this also in the case of India, perhaps to an even greater extent, that for some countries they may have resources but their influence doesn't necessarily match what you might expect based on population. So when you surveyed the activities of these foreign ministers, which I can only imagine how immense a task that would have been, did you focus on their engagement and interactions with just other Asian countries or did you do this on a worldwide basis? So we only measure activity within the index and so, you know, that explains, for example, why it comes out that China, for example, is more active in those foreign minister dialogues than the United States Secretary of State. And that's because US Secretary of State has to devote a relatively greater proportion of his or her time to global activities, um, whereas China can focus, you know, more predominantly on Asia. But that's that's essentially our goal in the power index is to is to measure power and influence in this region specifically, which is a broad definition of Asia, including obviously Southeast Asia, but also South Asia and Northeast Asia. So when you look at the eight indices, and maybe particularly the diplomatic index, I think you do an admirable job of kind of counting what can be counted. There must be qualitative measures. I mean, you and I talked um, before the interview about, for instance, who's got consulates in like secondary cities, and but it's, it's hard to quantify that. So, if if there was some magic way to capture some of this, I mean, what do you think are the are the unquantifiable characteristics that you know color this story a little bit? And I think you pointed out that the U.S. Secretary of State probably has a broader remit and more demands on his time than his Chinese counterpart is is an interesting example. Yeah, there are, there are many things that are hard to, to quantify. So we, we can include the consulates and we do include diplomatic networks. So that, that's covered, but there are certainly things that are more intangible. So, and I get great suggestions about this all the time. Things I would love to do if we could, if we could somehow capture it. Like someone said to me this week, it would be great if you could capture the extent to which China and U- US narratives are successful in the region. So can you track 
what's the uptake of terms like global security initiative versus community of common destiny versus the Indo-Pacific, free and open Indo-Pacific, etc. You know, the challenge there is that a lot of the terminology that the US uses isn't exclusively driven by the US. It's also coming by other countries from other countries like India and Japan. You know, there's also the whole question around informal diplomacy. How do political parties relate to each other? And that's that's very difficult to capture. I think the way that we try and cover off on those things is through doing the qualitative survey with experts where we ask them to assess what is the efficacy of each country in advancing its interests in Asia. And we also ask the question globally so we can compare. You know, that should capture some of these things, but there's a lot, especially in terms of I would say diplomatic influence and cultural influence are the two measures where it's hardest to get tangible data. So we do use proxies and and things like that to try and compensate. Speaking of cultural influence, just so listeners know, Blackpink, the K-pop group, just recently performed in Malaysia. And I was actually a little surprised to see South Korea pretty low among the top 10 um, ranking of your cultural influence list. Um, and the United States, I think, has like almost doubled the lead of China's, which is unsurprising given the U.S. soft power. But what explains South Korea's number seven ranking, um, since it does so well among Southeast Asian countries in terms of cultural influence? So part of it might be that the, the term we use in the index for that measure about cultural influence might not really fully reflect everything that we're actually looking at in that measure. So I think when people think of cultural influence, they think, like you say, of K-pop and K-drama. But really what we're looking at is a whole range of other factors, and many of these are areas where the U.S. has really enduring advantages. So things like information flows, which newspapers, which news agencies, which radio broadcasters are the most popular around the region. We also look at the flow of people, so uh, which countries are most attractive as migration destinations, as education destinations, again, areas where the US tends to perform quite strongly. So I think that's that's probably the answer to that question. So it's not just all K-pop and manga and Hollywood films. <laughs> Although I will I will note that I've I've taken at least like eight grabs in the last two days in, in KL, and every single one has been playing English language pop, not K-pop. Not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying clearly American music is dominating the, the FM airwaves here in KL. Maybe it's your soft power, Greg. Maybe they change the channel when they see me get in. That, that could actually be disturbingly true. And what a good grab driver. <laughs> Way more responsive than Uber drivers back in the States. So uh, one country we haven't talked about is is Japan. And I think, you know, in the U.S., there's this perception that, like, people, including me, look at public opinion polls around the region and say, oh, Japan's far and away the most trusted partner. I mean, that doesn't carry any of the baggage that the Americans and the Chinese do. And yet your uh, index shows Japan with, what, half of Chinese influence and sick. So what's up? Yeah, well, Japan, I mean, you're right to point out that Japan and also India as the sort of the region's two sort of, I suppose, secondary powers after the US and China hasn't necessarily performed in line with people's expectations. And in Japan's case, that is really the result of long-term relative economic decline, which means that Japan is becoming a less important 
trade and investment partner in relative terms. And that's certainly true specifically in Southeast Asia as well as within Asia as a whole. So one of the things that we do in the index, which I think is really important, is we look at investment in terms of 10-year capital flows. And when you look at it that way, you can see that Japan is, you know, only the top investor in a couple of countries, whereas many other analysis and research projects will focus more on stocks where the story is a bit different. The same is true in trade with, you know, China, as I think is well known, having you know, established itself as a pretty dominant trade partner for most countries in the region. And then I guess on the on the flip side of that, of course, Japan is establishing itself as a more important security partner for many countries in the region. But that's something that is only slowly showing itself in our data. And actually this this year is the first time that Japan actually recorded an improvement in its military capability in the five years of the power index. And it was was only a small one. And, you know, it's in line with other data that I've seen about Japan's defense spending, which is basically that it's flatlined for a long time and has slightly ticked up now. So the sort of the headline for Japan, I would say, is it's not establishing itself as a security partner quickly enough to compensate for that loss of economic influence. What's the one finding that surprised you, Susanna, from this year's Uh, uh, index? uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but I... Susanna told me earlier that this is the one question she gets in every interview. Oh, really? And I thought I was being clear, but you know how to answer that. No, now she she absolutely has to answer Uh, No, no, I I can answer it. And actually, you know, the, the answer actually relates to Malaysia because one of the things that is quite surprising is that Malaysia's cultural influence I know, I is, is as high as it is. And that is because Malaysian media is really quite popular in neighbouring countries. In Singapore and Brunei, it scores as one of the, the highest. That's for like newspapers and broadcasters as well. So that is certainly something that, that surprised me. That's shocking, not even surprising to me. Got a number of prominent Malaysian uh, stand-up comedians and rappers hitting the scene, far more than anywhere else in the region, I think. It's not just Ronnie Chen. Yeah, (laughs) a whole popular genre. So Alina asked what surprises you most. Um, I'd I'd like to ask kind of what annoys you most, right? I mean, I assume every single year this comes out, you get angry calls. Why aren't I ranked higher? Um, Or why is my neighbor ranked higher? What do you wish people would just get about the index and back off? I think one thing is the the geographic scope for sure is that we're we're attempting to measure power in Asia and so we do often get asked by countries who are outside the region like some European countries, also Canada, are often very keen to be included in in the Asia Power Index oh. and that's a difficult one just methodologically because we're committed to the idea of measuring power in Asia. And so if we count the power resources of a lot of countries whose focus is not predominantly in Asia, we would end up overestimating their influence by a considerable margin. And then on on the reverse, we do also get those who say, oh, well, the US is is ranked number one, but it's not really in Asia either. And so there, I guess we just point to the fact that, you know, part of our criteria for considering who should be in and who should be out is based on membership of regional groupings. That's why we have Russia in there as well. And Russia performs surprisingly well. We have to draw the line somewhere. 
I want to note that Alina started laughing as soon as you said the word Canada. I don't know what's up with that. <laughs> I Well, I laughed silently. You, on the other hand, chuckled. But you know, I think your problem could be solved if you just change the name of the Asia Power Index to the Indo-Pacific Power Index. Oh. <laughs> Believe me, we got suggestions about that every year as well. <laughs> Russia. Russia decreased in seven of your eight. Um, and I've heard you say in other four that you would guess that that's going to continue and probably accelerate as a result of the war in Ukraine. Yeah, so Russia had a pretty marked step down, especially in terms of diplomatic influence. And and that was because the experts who we surveyed, I think, both were concerned about the sort of strategic direction that Russia showed with its invasion of Ukraine, but perhaps also were expressing doubts about the extent to which Russia would actually be able to focus on Asia. So I think that will continue to decline. And then Russia's influence in Asia is is highly dependent on both its military capability but also some of its defence networks with key countries in the region like with uh, India and Vietnam in particular. And many experts cast doubt on whether or not Russia would be able to sustain some of those procurement and supply relationships that it has given what has happened to its industrial base following the invasion of Ukraine. So I think that would certainly put put downward pressure on Russia's position in the power index in future. Well, that's it for us this week. Susanna, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out after already a long day at this conference to stay in the room under the world's loudest air conditioner and talk to Alina and I. Uh, Alina, thanks as always. Next time, uh, you'll be hearing us from back home in D.C. Thank you, Susanna. Great to join you guys. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. We're still looking for listener questions for our one-year anniversary episode next month, so write to us at searadio at csis.org and we'll answer your question on air. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer and our interns are Stephen Vo and Margaret Lin. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Karen Lee. And I'm SD Chen. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.